What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this 201st episode, we consider the former Goldman executive charged with FCPA violations and how Goldman Sachs was able to avoid those same allegations against the company, how what will made in China mean going forward, We consider the steps that can be taken to fight corruption that is occurring in response to the coronavirus crisis. Sarah Steingruber in the Global Anti-Corruption blog. What FCPA landmarks, or landmines rather, are lurking beneath COVID-19. Scott Roybal in the National Law Review. Does the coronavirus health crisis hobble monitors? Minky Sun explores in W. SJ Risk and Compliance Journal, as well as another article from Mindy on British American tobacco under investigation for export control violations. What might a national privacy look like? Logan Finucan explores in CCI. What do PACs and coronavirus have in common? Sarah Croft explores. We take a look at the week on compliance and coronavirus and the week of podcast on this month. 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, Continuous Monitoring. All this and more on This Week in FCPA. A production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors for This Week in FCPA, episode 201 for the week ending April 17, 2020, the Brian Dennehy Tribute Edition. As we found out today, Brian Dennehy has passed away, and as Emperor Trump has informed us that only he can decide when the company re- country will reopen for business, self-distancing Tom Fox and Jay Rosen are back to consider some of the week's top compliance articles and stories which caught our collective isolation eye. Jay, what say you? I say that we are the like an odometer, and we're turning one forward to 201. So it's like going right back to the beginning again. And uh, let's hear about an investment bank that uh, came out with a good uh, result in an FCPA matter. So that's not just a investment bank, Jay. It's the investment bank. Uh, a Goldman Sachs former executive, Asante Burko, was charged civilly by the Securities and Exchange Commission for facilitation of bribes uh, for a contract that he uh, facilitated while he was working at Goldman Sachs. So, you know, fairly stunning to have an individual charged, but even more stunning perhaps was that uh, Goldman Sachs uh, was not prosecuted uh, by this uh, either the Department of Justice or the Securities and Exchange Commission. So we've linked to three articles. Harry Kasson broke the story about uh, Burko being charged. Matt Kelly took a deep dive into uh, how Goldman Sachs was able to uh, obtain a declination. And then Jacqueline Jager sort of summarized both. So we've got links to all three. But uh, the... Underground, uh, underlying facts or just um, uh, 
fairly stunning in terms of the bribery and corruption engaged in by Burko, but equally interesting, as reported by Matt Kelly, were the steps taken by Goldman Sachs to uncover this. Uh, Burko lied uh, multiple times to Goldman Sachs uh, compliance uh, folks uh, in terms of uh, whether third parties were involved, whether corruption was involved, uh, whether facilitation payments were made. Uh, and even in the face of being put off by Burko, Goldman Sachs Compliance Department continued to uh, investigate this matter as a high-risk matter and uncovered the bribery and corruption and turned that over to the U.S. government. So, um I would say a big win for Goldman Sachs, a big win for compliance, certainly a big win for the Securities and Exchange Commission. No word on whether criminal charges will be brought um, against Burko, but uh, pretty big news in the FCPA world, Jay. I think my favorite part of the article, Tom, was that Burko actually quoted back verbatim parts of the FCPA guidance into what his supposed third party was doing in the middle of this transaction. So that was the part that I... uh, Brought a smile to my lips. Cut and paste is your friend. Yeah. So uh, next up, uh, we have an article that's coming to us from our friend Dan Harris, who writes the China Law Blog. And the article's entitled, China Manufacturing is Riskier Than Ever, What to Do to Reduce Your China Manufacturing Risks. And there are a couple things that uh, Dan looks at, first of all. China IP theft is on the rise. These sorts of factories that are the norm in China these days and these sorts of factories see that foreign buyers, not so much as long-term customers, but as marks that can be plundered for their intellectual property. This sets up a trap, number one, the lose your product trap. And under this scenario, foreign company takes its design or it's not yet realized product to a Chinese manufacturer and asks that manufacturer to make it. So that's to lose your product. And then the uh, other side of this is lose your trademark trap. The other common trap is that a Chinese manufacturer will register a foreign company's brand name as the Chinese manufacturer's own trademark in China. Chinese manufacturers has usually filed for this trademark within a few days of the initial contract. So now later on in the story, uh, Dan goes on to speak about six basic things you can do to reduce your China manufacturing risks. Number one, use a good manufacturer. If you do nothing else that we discuss, do this one thing because it matters as much as all factors put together. Number two, use good manufacturing agreements. Good contracts will ensure Chinese manufacturers know what is required and what will happen. Number three, use detailed documents. Chinese factories that engage in contract manufacturing tend to do exactly what you tell them to do, no less and no more. Visit the factory. Either your own people or a third-party quality control company should pay regular visits. Five, inspect your products. Perform regular product inspections appropriate to the product you are having made. And number six, register your IP. If you have IP worth protecting, and pretty much all of you do, then make sure you do absolutely everything you can within reason to protect you both in China and wherever you sell your products. Tom, what else do we have that's happening in China? Well, Jay, uh, we bookended the Dan Harris article with an article by Dick Casson over on the FCPA blog. And frankly, I thought it was uh, not really thought-provoking, but it really laid down some clear uh, steps that compliance practitioners need to take, uh, particularly around China. And Dick um, 
wants us to think about what's going to happen if our supply chain has to move out of China. And I think many companies are, are looking at that. Coronavirus is certainly a risk. Uh, Trump's trade war is a risk. Um, and just generally the relationships between the United States and China are at a low ebb due to Trump. And, of course, the things that Dan uh, articulated in his piece are, are real legal risks that uh, they will steal you blind in China. Um, well, what happens if you move? What happens if you change countries? Uh, first of all, you have to get your equipment out of China. Uh, so that's number one. Uh, but that's going to require some type of permitting. And then where are you going to move to? Are you going to move to Thailand? Are you going to move to Vietnam? Are you going to move to Indonesia? Are you going to move to Singapore? Uh, Are you going to move to the Philippines? Are you going to go to Australia? Where are you going to go to? Well, if you're going to set up shop and have a lengthy supply chain in any of those countries, you're going to have to have a lot of government interactions around um, permitting, uh, building permits, permits to operate uh, businesses, tax filings, uh, lots of different uh, local permits that may engender corruption, as well as getting your stuff out of China may engender corruption. So it really, I think, tells the compliance practitioner, you need to understand what your supply chain is going to do. You need to understand what your manufacturing base is going to do, and you need to be a part of those discussions so that you can uh, be prepared uh, to not only confront any demands for bribery, but even proactively educate your workforce. So uh, some really good stuff from uh, Dick, and it really points, Jay, to one of the topics that I hope we can start to explore a little bit more over the next few weeks, which is what is business going to be like after it gets turned back on? And what, more importantly, what does that mean for uh, the compliance professional? Great. So um, next up, we have a story, a guest post uh, to the Global Anti-Corruption blog, and it's measures to counter counter corruption in the coronavirus pandemic response. Uh, today's guest post is from Sarah Steingruber, an independent global health expert and global health lead for curbing corruption. The coronavirus pandemic is a global health challenge, the likes of which has not been seen in over a century. The outbreak demands swift and bold action, not only in direct response to the pandemic, but also in ensuring that monies are correctly spent, that companies do not profit unfairly from others' misfortunes, and that the power is not abused by our leaders. Two weeks ago, Sarah published a commentary on this blog that identified some of the critical corruption risks associated with the response to the corona pandemic. In today's post, she takes a look at, at she moves from a diagnosis of the risk to some of the possible solutions. First, anti-corruption safeguards should be mainstreamed into all national and local outbreak responses, and government should take steps to ensure transparency and oversight. Second, because this outbreak will also demand significant donor support for low- and middle-income companies, countries, rather, LMICS, to help these states cope with additional health burdens, and because of the substantial corruption risk associated with this sort of emergency support, donors should not only provide financial support for public health and economic relief, but should also provide targeted funds to enhance anti-corruption safeguards. Third, in order to prevent corrupt or predatory 
predatory behavior by private sector firms, rights for data, knowledge, and technologies found to be useful, and the prevention, detection, and treatment of the virus should be made available in an open pool similar to medicines to the medicines patent pool. And finally, fourth, because of the crucial role that civil society organizations and independent journalists play in ensuring transparency and accountability in these crises, not only uh, for corruption, but other abuses of power undertaken with the pandemic as a pretext, national governments and international donors should provide support and protections. This by no means is an exhaustive list of anti-corruption intervention and safeguards that can be applied, but as the outbreak unfolds, new ideas and solutions will be needed. As the anti-corruption community, we have the extraordinary opportunity before us to put our extensive toolbox into action and work together with public health community to minimize the social, economic, and political disruption that is caused by this outbreak. Another article we had from the National Law Review by Scott Roybal uh, took a look at landmines might be lurking under COVID-19. And uh, a large part of this article was sort of a summary of the FCPA, but he did have some some good points that um, certainly you should uh, consider um, a little bit broader than just the FCPA. Uh, There's going to be Obviously, a lot of money distributed by the federal government and fraud in procurement and fraud in the CARES uh, corporate bailout will be uh, certainly on the forefront of the DOJ's mind. But he also reminds us that if you don't record monies correctly in your books and records, uh, that's a potential FCPA violation, even if you don't have domestic, uh, excuse me, uh, international bribery involved. So always remember that the FCPA uh, amended the 1934 Securities Act uh, and mandates effective internal controls and accurate books and records. So that's sort of point one. The um, the other things he he talked about will not be unusual or or new for the compliance practitioner. Maintain a strong compliance present presence. Emphasize reporting procedures internally. But I would like to focus on his third point because I thought this is really a good time uh, to uh, to think about increased screenings and transaction review. I talked to uh, Vince Walden last week. Uh, he has a podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network talk, called The Walden Pond, and he talked about uh, your post-contract payment stream. And I thought that was a great phrase because in the compliance world, Jay, I don't think we think enough about a payment stream. So uh, not so much the payments before your contract is signed, but what about after your contract is signed? Are you aware of payments that go out if you have a massive contract involving a foreign government or a state-owned enterprise? Uh, that might be something that, as uh, Brian uh, excuse me, uh, Roy will suggest you might want to increase your transaction review and take a deeper dive uh, into what happens after the contract is signed. This is certainly a propitious time to do so. So uh, some good thoughts in from this article. Always good to be reminded of the basics, but maybe uh, do what uh, Vince has suggested and, and indeed Scott suggests here, which is take a look at the uh, transaction part uh, step of your uh, five steps in the life cycle of uh, third-party risk management and uh, consider the post-contract payment stream. Good advice. Good advice. Uh, next up, we have the first of two articles 
from the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. This is from Mengwe Sun, and it's entitled, Coronavirus Hobbles Corporate Compliance Monitoring. Lockdowns and curbs on travel have scuttled a critical part of supervision, the on-site visit. Lockdowns intended to blunt the spread of the coronavirus are delaying work of corporate monitors who rely on visits to companies and access to sensitive data to ensure that regulator-mandated changes to compliance regimes are being upheld. When you visit a site and you're actually there, you can see how people interact and how they relate. Corporate monitors are independent compliance experts appointed by regulators, usually as part of settlement. Monitorships vary in scope and duration, and each requires a submission of work plans for regular approval months in advance. The plans usually include site visits, as discussed above, and reports based partly on direct observation of the company culture. Prior to the pandemic, most lot site visits were periodic, lasting one to three weeks at a stretch to review transactions and con- conduct in-person interviews, and then off-site for two to three months. In other instances, a monitor might pop into a com- country or company more frequently once a week or a month, depending on their need to attend meetings and make contacts. On-site visits are usually complemented by remote reviews, such as analyzing backup data. Um, COVID-19 has really poured gasoline on the video conferencing process, the article notes. Both the quality of the technology and the distribution of the tech and the comfort of everybody else with technical abilities to larger conferences has just increased exponentially over the last few weeks. Still, virtual meetings cannot replace the immediacy of a face-to-face encounter or an office visit, either of which provides greater clarity on the company's operations and whether its program is working. That kind of evaluation, determining how seriously compliance is being taken and whether employees are telling the truth, is much harder to see on video. So, Tom, if I can uh, get on my soapbox for a little bit, I think this article should be entitled Chicken Little, the Sky is Falling. Uh, it seems like uh, it's overreaction Thursday night taping for a Friday podcast that woe is me that I'm a global law firm or I'm a global investigations company and I can't use technology to follow up on my monitoring. Uh, here at Affiliated Monitors, we have seen that some monitors and organizations may feel that coronavirus is holding back their monitoring mandates, but we are sanguine about moving forward with our current technology solutions in place. We have currently set up to address precisely remote situations such as these. Our teams have regularly deployed remote monitoring techniques using tested technology and processes. We are actively providing monitoring services for government agencies as we speak and to our clients during this pandemic, as well as attracting new clients who require more flexibility and innovation in monitoring approaches. And I would just add, Tom, as we've seen over the last five or six weeks, uh, people have gotten very creative about using technology and using the additional time that they have. And just think of all these billable hours you lose by not sitting on an airplane or going to a foreign country. Maybe the tools that are involved now in monitoring are becoming more egalitarian and might provide better outcomes going forward. Mic drop. If if I could just add, uh, I don't think one of the discussions really going on in the compliance community as much as perhaps it could be is – 
the monies, not so much the monies you save by uh, not having to travel constantly, but the reallocation of those monies so you can really uh, improve your compliance program. If compliance has the money budgeted, that that can be used for a variety of other reasons. And so um, I think that compliance officers should really look at this as an opportunity and uh, you and your colleagues have been uh, very open and, and very forceful in uh, talking about the strategies, tools, and tactics that you guys use uh, as your work uh, as the leading monitor company around. So, uh, you know, I've done a couple of podcasts with Vin and Eric on this. The tools are available, and I agree with your opening that uh, it, it is a a lot more than a little bit of chicken little, the sky's falling. Uh, but there's there's strategies you can use. And by employing those strategies, I think at the end of the day, you can probably come out even stronger. I think so. Uh, as I hinted before, we're going back to the Wall Street Journal again. Uh, another article by Mengwe Sun, and it's entitled British American Tobacco Under Investigation in the U.S. for Possible Sanctions Breach. What's that about, Tom? So first of all, Jay, uh, this company has the greatest acronym I can think of, BAT, B-A-T, British American Tobacco. So, you know, being an Adam West kind of Batman guy, anytime I see the BAT, I'm good. But uh, B-A-T is under investigation for trade sanctions violations. You might ask, well, Tom, don't they just sell cigarettes? Well, yes, they do, Jay, but they were apparently selling those cigarettes to uh, places you can't even sell cigarettes to. Uh, So that would be uh, Cuba. That would be uh, Iran. I don't think they're selling cigarettes to uh, North Korea, but uh, if they are, naughty, naughty on them. Uh, But this is not something new. They said in an annual report filed last month um, that uh, it's cooperating with the DOJ. They previously, in an annual statement, announced that they were under investigation and that the uh, penalties or consequences could be, quote, material, end quote. So it could be a pretty serious fine. Uh, Selling to Iran and Cuba under the current administration are, uh, I think, well-known non-starters and will put you directly in the crosshairs of uh, OFAC and the Department of Treasury. Turning our focus on privacy, we've got an article coming to us from Corporate Compliance Insights. It's entitled U.S. Privacy Law in the Making, Ongoing Republican-Democratic Efforts to Enact Privacy Legislation. And this comes to us from Access Partnerships' Logan Finucian. Hope I've said that right. Uh, Debates in the U.S. Congress regarding comprehensive privacy legislation have been underway for some time. Long championed by consumer advocates and supported by members of Congress, it took high-profile scandals like Cambridge Analytica, as well as a major looming state-level measure here in California, the California Consumer Privacy Act, to uh, nudge the politicians along. Privacy is one of the few issues in Congress where there is bipartisan consensus that something must be done. Uh, While taking aim at the technology industry, Republicans also want to shield businesses from the burdens of CCPA compliance in addition to EU GDR. Many Democrats, on the other hand, are also happy to join in with the tech bashing and are using political momentum to steer demands for their individual protections. So first of all, uh, they take a look at the CCPA effect. 
the primary motivator for Congress to act on privacy was the passage of the Progressive California Consumer Privacy Act. Uh, Other states are moving to uh, pass similar laws. So Congress should get in on this while they have an opportunity to opine. Uh, Next, in terms of reading between the bills, different visions for what a comprehensive federal privacy law should look like have been put forward. Some are fairly stripped down, principles-based bills. Others have been presented by those such as Senator Brian Schatz. He has the Data Care Act and Representative Suzanne Delbane's Information Transparency and Personal Data Control Act. So how likely is a compromise? Despite some challenges, Republicans and Democrats sides in the Senate have converged to a significant degree. In the Senate Commerce Committee, there have been sides of accommodation by Republicans. And then on the topic of private rights of action, as well as some movement by Democrats led by Senator Maria Cantwell on partial preemption of state uh, of state level measures. So what should we expect Well, the first few months of 2020 will provide a significant indication of the trajectory for new federal privacy laws. Uh, It looks like things have been overshadowed now by the COVID virus response. We could create space for a quiet toxic compromise, but it could just as easily allow the process to wither on the vine. What we should do is watch for any new overtures between Chairman Wicker and Senator Cantwell. If such efforts really have run their course, a new bipartisan proposal could come from Senators Jerry Moran and Richard Blumenthal. Uh, After November 3rd, 2020, if it takes that long and we go to elections, this might be something for a new president and hopefully a different uh, composed Congress to consider early in their leadership term of 2021. So, Jay, what do scam packs and the coronavirus have in common? Are they potentially fraud-inducing vehicles that are built to set upon the average consumer? Well, uh, coronavirus certainly sets upon the average bear, that's for sure. So good thing (laughs) Boo Boo is here to keep us out of trouble. And today, uh, that comes from the grand jury target uh, by Andrea Mosley over at Sarah Croft's great blog. And it's really a great review of two areas that fraud fighters need to be um, aware of. Obviously, the coronavirus, the funding that's going to hospitals, the bailout to corporate America of $2 trillion uh, is well known. But uh, Andrea talks about political scam or scam political action committees, that's the PAC or PACs. And these are becoming uh, more uh, pronounced uh, as um, uh, individuals simply defraud uh, gullible political donors for money that never gets either to candidates who they're identified for or candidates at all. So um, in the upcoming few months leading to the next election, um, Andrea suggests that we be more vigilant about this. She lists several of the scam packs uh, and how they operate. And these don't just prey on individuals. They also prey on corporations. So as a corporate compliance practitioner, you need to uh, go in and and remind everybody about the rules for donations uh, at your corporation. It's going to be probably the most contested election uh, of our lifetime, Jay, and maybe 
since the Great Depression when FDR was elected. So a lot of uh, scrutiny. The Department of Justice has made clear they will prosecute individuals around PACs. The Federal Trade Commission is the body responsible for policing telemarketing but it does not have jurisdiction over political fundraising. So uh, lots of federal scrutiny on uh, all of these. So, Tom, there's always uh, a lot of uh, content that you're creating in terms of podcasts for this week. What are some of the things we should uh, point the viewers toward? So on compliance and coronavirus, clarity and sanity for the compliance professional, I had uh, Kevin uh, Abakoff and uh, Mike Hunicki from Hughes Hubbard on why neither enforcement nor compliance why enforcement doesn't sleep and why compliance can't afford to sleep. Ryan Wilkins is a lawyer from Los Angeles, Jay, and he for, focuses on corporate governance. And he came on and talked about corporate filings, particularly uh, financial filings of U.S. public companies during coronavirus. And then um, today I had Trisha Cornwell, and she's with Rethink Compliance, a woman-owned consulting business in the compliance space. And we were originally going to talk about effective training during working remotely in the, during the time of coronavirus. But Tricia brought up a term that I really liked, and she talked about focusing on your time horizons. Typically, a compliance professional is, uh, you know, it's a busy, you're a business executive. You're looking at quarterly, you're looking at uh, six months, year, perhaps further out. But uh, she said during the time of coronavirus, you may need to look at what am I going to do the next 24 hours? What is my team going to do the next week? What are we going to do the next two weeks? And to really shorten your time horizon. So I thought that uh, was really interesting. Uh, As you know, Jay, because you were a part of it, everything compliance gang got together. Um, as my friends at Mad Magazine used to say, the usual gang of idiots. But we were joined by Jonathan Marks. So uh, we had uh, special guests, and we took a look at uh, uh, the coronavirus from a variety of angles. Uh, so that uh, podcast has been posted. And then uh, I continue my 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program in April, where I look at, I am looking at continuous improvement. Uh, this month, uh, Affiliated Monitors is a uh, sponsoring that podcast. So uh, thanks again for that. But on Monday, I looked at, or this week, I really focused on different types of auditing. So Monday, it was the culture audit. Tuesday, it was the fraud audit. Uh, Wednesday, it was the integrity audit. And yes, that's different from the culture audit. Uh, Today, or rather Thursday, is the mock audit, not something talked about enough, I think. And then Friday, uh, the day of this podcast, I flip over to uh, continuous monitoring for continuous improvement. So uh, lots of stuff, uh, nuts and bolts for the compliance practitioner. What say you? So uh, I, I were, let's take our um, our vision and turn it towards Hollywood and towards Brian Dennehy, who mentioned at the start of the call. And I was trying to think of, you know, what is my favorite Brian Dennehy music, uh, music movie? And I think it's kind of tough when you're a supporting actor and you're like that part of the film that you know that gives you comfort and gives you a point to relate to, uh, you know, you like seeing those actors, the the Ned Beatty's, the Brian Dennehy's. And I was trying to, I'm just looking here on some of the stuff from IMDb. And um, I would think First Blood, uh, the first Rambo movie he was in, I remember him having a, a nice role in Cocoon. 
and uh, also in Legal Eagles. But he's that kind of solid present, the guy who backs up the lead. And uh, I, I was, um, it looks like he was in Gladiator. He was in Tommy Boy. So he's had a real varied career. What were some of his memorable roles that you recall? So, Jay, uh, there is, in my mind, one role of Brian Dennehy, and that was in Silverado, where he got to play the bad guy. And he was a crooked, dirty sheriff who was running a town, and um, he uh, was uh, cleaned out by Kevin Klein and his group, who included Kevin Costner and um, and others. But uh, he, he was a great bad guy, and he absolutely reveled in the role. You could just look at how he played it, and you could tell not only was he in on the joke, but he, he was having fun. He was getting to dress up as a cowboy and be a bad guy. And, you know, he had the black duster. He had black hat, and uh, he just controlled this town uh, that uh, he was in. So uh, that was really the one that uh, struck stuck out with me uh, from that role. Uh, he, he was so good. The movie was so good. I love that movie uh, as, as well. Um, the cast was just uh, outstanding. Uh, Lawrence Kasdan uh, directed, and he's one of my favorite directors. So um, that's the role for me. And, and Jay, you were, you were thinking you hadn't seen him in a while. He was on this season's Blacklist. Um, so, you know, he, he acted right up until, uh, shortly before he passed away. So, um, but I, I really, I, I have to agree with you on the, the character actor part. I think, uh, probably when we were growing up, um, character actors were not as prominently, uh, thought of, uh, and talked about as they are now. And now we, we recognize a, a set of character actors and you name several, um, who, who bring, uh, gravitas, I think, to mm-hmm. roles in a way that perhaps leading men, uh, don't, uh, and certainly women, uh, as well. Um, so, uh, I really, uh, always enjoyed Brian Dennehy. He could, he could play comedy. He could play it straight up. He could be the bad guy. He could be the good guy. He could be your father. He could be your worst enemy. And he could do them all. And he did them all with panache. Well, I think uh, I haven't seen Silverado since it probably came out in the theater. So uh, I think uh, that's going to go on my list to go online and see if I can find it. So uh, on behalf of Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist and the Voice of Compliance, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, Episode 201, for the week ending April 17, 2020, the Farewell to Brian Dennehy edition. Uh, as always, we appreciate you spending some time with us over the weekend, uh, thinking about FCPA ethics and compliance. Our thoughts turn to you. We wish you both a healthy and a safe week, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take a look at some of the week's top ethics and compliance stories. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again next week.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.